0: Welcome to Ideas Goes Abroad. We are Marlinda and Camila. Two students of the master program International Development Studies at Utrecht University. For our studies, the whole class was spread out over the Global South to conduct field research. From Sudan to Costa Rica, from Vietnam to South Africa. From remote villages and rainforests to metropolises and tourist hotspots. We're here to bring you stories from
1: our fellow students who have done research and lived on the other side of the world. In each episode, we learn about their adventures and cherished moments, and how they managed to do their research while dealing with cultural shocks. On today's episode, we have Muraye. She's a Dutch fellow student and has a background in public international law. She's accustomed to living abroad, as she now resides in Istanbul. For her research, she went to Khartoum in Sudan, where she analyzed the mobilization and resistant aspects of the Third Sudanese Revolution.
2: Welcome, Marije. Thank you. Welcome. Nice to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Okay, first of all, can you specify a bit what your research focus was about? I particularly focused on the December movement in Khartoum and the main stakeholders of the movement in which the youth was active. And in particular, like the role that social media played in like the process of bringing awareness and mobilization and eventually, yeah, the end of al Bashir's 30 30-year-long regime.
0: Could you explain a bit about the December movement that you explored and also the more general context of Sudan at the moment that you
2: were there? Um, so the Third Sudanese Revolution broke out in December 2018. And it was a result of like long period of decline on economic, social, and political conditions. For 30 years, al-Bashir ruled the country with an iron fist. It was before a very liberal country, I would say. For example, alcohol was consumed. It was a hotspot for jazz. And in these 30 years, this country completely transformed in uh, Yeah, in a bad way, I would say. And one of these main factors was actually the Islamic movement that put al-Bashir into power. So you told us that the
0: economic situation deteriorated in Sudan. Was there also a more
2: specific spark for the revolution? Um So in 2011, uh, South Sudan succeeded from Sudan. And in South Sudan, the main oil fields are uh, situated. And as a result, a major income of the Sudanese government was gone. And you could see that back on the streets as is people not being able to afford bread. Uh, in Khartoum, you're still lucky as it's like the hub where everything is located. You can still find it but in the small villages, there was not even bread, even if they had the means to buy it. Yeah, these kind of things, they defined the revolution in the beginning as a bread revolution. And later on, uh, you had this image circulating of this woman in white traditional clothing. And then it became more like a woman revolution. But I think it's still a misconception. It's like a whole... Revolution. It's not really a woman revolution, but it was the whole country yeah. revolting against right. the government. Mm-hmm. There were even like, I heard some interviews that even within the family of al Bashir, they were really done with him and how he, yeah, managed to bring the country down.
0: Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of support for the movement and it has a really general foundation in the country. How did the revolution resolve then?
2: So the revolution started in 2018, like December. And uh, first it was just, you know, marches and, and small rev- yeah, revolts in all kinds of forms through the country. And then there was a sit-in staged in April in front of the army headquarters, And you have to imagine this huge place in front of the army headquarters with like thousands and thousands of people coming there. And it started first as a march uh, in Khartoum. How the people describe it is very beautiful. It's like several lines of people from different directions are coming together and they're like running towards each other, like hugging, dancing, there's a lot of music. It's very actually a happy atmosphere and very optimistic. Even though, obviously, there is police, military that is, you know, shooting at them and trying to uh, stop these marches heading to the uh, headquarter of the army. So they managed to go there and kind of spontaneous, they decided, like, we won't leave until al-Bashir falls. Their main slogan or main chant through the whole revolution was also just fall. And they sit there and until the 11th of April, 2019, the military took over and put al-Bashir in prison. So he stepped down. But what the people wanted was actually, you know, the whole regime gone, including the very corrupt regime and military. Al-Bashir is one person, but his influence is everywhere, like is in companies, is in the military, is in all kind of fractions of the government. So with him gone, the regime is still there, even though military took power. So it didn't resolve the problem and what the people were demanding. They were demanding a democratic elected government. Al-Bashir was gone, but instead they got this transitional military council, which they didn't want. They wanted, you know, civilians to lead the government.
1: Can you describe Khartoum and what, it, like, what the city
2: looks like? Khartoum is like a very busy city. There's this, yeah, liveliness vibe the, the city has. It's a desert temperature in that specific area. So when I was staying there, like temperatures could rise up to 45 degrees and even go higher. And I mean, everywhere there is this, you know, dust, sand dust from the desert. I mean, it would go under the doors, through the windows, get stuck in your ears and nose. Mm -hmm. So you would find it. At all places. And so the city also is like covered with this. So it has this, you know, yellow sandy uh, look. But it's an interesting city because you will find in the area I was living, it was mainly where the foreigners were living. So you had very modern buildings. But next to a modern building, you could find this really traditional kind of houses with, you know, one floor and like whole families living there. So you have this rich poor, traditional, modern, all going crisscross to the city.
1: Sounds really beautiful. What does it sound like if you step out during the day?
2: It depends in which parts you are. So if I would sit on my balcony, it was actually quite peaceful. You could hear like a lot of birds because I had trees around uh, my balcony um, but if you go more into like the, the the center center, it's like, you know, traffic, people. And how did you get around like the city? Yeah, so if I would be with uh, friends that know the language and are from Khartoum, I would use public transport with them. Taking public transport the buses is an experience by itself. So you have these hand gestures that state... If you are okay with standing in the bus, if the bus is full, you know, if you make this like hitchhiking sign, it shows that you want to go to a certain part of like you have all these hand gestures that mean like a different part of the city. So they know which place you want to go. Which I never got.
0: (laughs) In Cuba, we are exactly the same. (laughs) You really have to
2: learn the hand gestures to be able to get like a cab. or. (laughs) And the thing is, they change depending in which part of the city you are. That's complicated. Yeah. Super complicated.
1: I have a question on how you went from the very busy Dutch lifestyle into Khartoum's lifestyle. How did you integrate it?
2: Um, it was very natural. You like in general, I'm very easy integrated and, and, you know, go with the flow of a certain culture and lifestyle. I ended up with a lot of friends that are actually musicians. So, you know, I would go to their houses. They would make music and I would chill with them and learn like this kind of Sudanese culture of sharing everything. And they're super friendly and inviting and they love to show their culture with you. So it's very easy to integrate. And even, you know, it's an Islamic country. So as a woman, you know, you have to be aware that certain things are not the same as in the West. But the general thing is you are a foreigner woman. So the rules applied differently to you, but still out of respect, you would cover up your knees and shoulders and even your arms. I would do that, but not necessarily headscarf. And that is also because when I went, the regime was already gone. So there was a lot more freedom. Like, for example, women could wear jeans. Something that a year ago was not possible at all. I think it's very
1: interesting. We had a lecture at the beginning of the year, the academic year, of a professor who went to Sudan many times. And she was telling us how if you're a white woman and also a researcher, you have to pose yourself in a certain way uh, in order to make your point valid. Did you experience that at all? How did you experience connecting with others in terms also of your research, not just hanging out with your friends?
2: Um, I think because of being a white woman in a majority black country, you know, you stand out. I mean, it's stupid, but there's already a certain respect coming because you're white. You have, yeah, they feel this certain authority. So follow researchers would already, you know, I'm a master's student, but I would talk with professors and they would treat me with a lot of respect. So I had no problems of people because I was a woman that they disregarded my opinion or didn't bother to listen to me or, you know. Okay.
1: Yeah, that sounds good, I guess, for to go there as a researcher. I guess it's nice. I'm sure that the situation is a bit different with women from there.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, as a foreigner woman... The tenants are completely different than if you're a local, but I mean, a lot has changed since the regime fell. So women were at the forefront of the revolution and they were demanding to, you know, have more power and, and more, yeah, freedom of movement in general. And like slowly, slowly, you know, you see that changing. Uh, You see more women on the streets in general, also after dark hours, the way they're dressed. I mean, I was not in the country before the revolution, but what I heard, their clothing style changed. They're more free to wear, but still people get called out because they're wearing a jeans.
1: Yeah, it's difficult to change the mindset of, of a whole population, of course, but maybe slowly with time, I hope.
2: I mean, it takes a long time, you know, it's been 30 years of this oppressive Islamic regime. So, you know, it doesn't change over one night. Definitely. And
1: what did you like most about people and the culture there? Um, In
2: general... Before I went to Sudan, people would tell me the people in Sudan are amazing. They're one of the most friendly and generous people in the world. And uh, I would say, okay, yeah, okay, I will find out. But then (laughs) I came there and, I mean, it was 100% true. Like, if I can generalize entire country and its population, I would say, like, Sudan by far is the most... The people are the best in the world, I would say. They're so helpful and yeah so just their mentality and the way they treat each other in general is something I absolutely love about them
1: yeah I love it every every student that we talk to tells this story so it just gives me a lot of hope you know (laughs) like to find like nice people everywhere in the world you can do it if you have the eyes of a fresh foreigner I think
0: Maybe it also says a bit about our own individualistic culture that we're so
2: surprised by
0: (laughs) by the (laughs) kindness.
2: Like going Dutch, you know, it's a saying. (laughs) I'd like to
0: get back to the research now and go into a bit more detail. What
2: were the main findings? As soon as I arrived and started talking with the people, I found out that there's this whole history of resistance. The Sudanese Revolution, it's called the Third Sudanese Revolution, which means there are already two before. The youth that was at the forefront of the Third Sudanese Revolution actually followed in their parents' and uh, grandparents' footsteps. So, one of my main findings is like this history of resistance. The youth built on historical experiences and knowledge of their parents and grandparents. Can you elaborate a little bit on
0: that? Like, in what ways did it show that they were building on these experiences?
2: So the youth built on these historical experiences and knowledge because the previous revolutions, you know, in the end didn't work out because they ended up with 30 years of al-Bashir in power. And this is one of the things that, for example, I interviewed a professor that was present during the second revolution. And she said, you know, when the government fell, people went home and said, okay, you know, we did it. It's fine. And this time when the government fell, the regime fell, people continued to be on the streets because they said, okay, the government is gone, but you know, we want a democracy. We want civilians into power and not military. So they basically went a step further than they did in the
0: second revolution.
2: Yes. So the second finding was more of the networks and the social organizational skills of the youth and how they used their activism. I found out that actually before the revolution started, the youth would already be in some form mobilized. Uh, so one of the main forms was, for example, student unions at university where they would share their political opinions, but also organizing events And the majority of the youth I interviewed was actually active as a volunteer. And even before, you know, they evolved into becoming activistic by volunteering and seeing the poverty in the country and how people are struggling, you cannot stay silent about it. And most of them already thought of like, you know, if it comes up to a revolution, we can actually build on this network that we use as a volunteer to, for example, distribute food or help with housing. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. What you could see during the revolution, when the revolution started, this network activated again. The people already knew each other and knew how to mobilize, how to get food and shelter. Yeah, so it was an important aspect of why uh, and how they could mobilise this quick and fast and efficient because of the existing networks before the revolution and my third finding also because of the use of uh, social media. Uh, Like social media turned out to be also an important uh, resource for like the mobilisation of the movement. Social media, you cannot see it as just online thing. In Sudan, it was very linked to the offline world. Internet and Facebook penetration was actually very low in Sudan. But still, social media was very effective because communication in Sudan and actually more of the African countries is built on this mouth-to-mouth network. So if one person for example in the community would have a phone then the whole community would use that phone and if there's information coming in that phone it would quickly spread around the community and this is what you saw so by the use of social media things would be spread of like you know there's this protest happening in this area and then people would go there or you know uh, one of the Protesters is seriously injured and need blood type A plus. So it social media was used in very different ways, but also ways of showing a certain security. So a lot of the protest was actually live streamed. So, uh, you could by looking at these live stream, you could see, okay, there's a lot of people already on the streets. So it's actually safe to join instead of you know three people showing up at a protest site.
0: Yeah, interesting.
2: Yeah, the the police would easily you know arrest them, but if it's like thousand and thousand people, you know, there's no start uh, for the police. And um, I was wondering
0: because social media, of course, offers a kind of a virtual safe space or safe to some extent. I am wondering how that was with this social movement in Sudan. Would it occur that people would actually post something critical and then being caught by the military? Were there repercussions for posting on social media that you know of?
2: Yes, for sure. Like, um, you know, social media can be uh, elaborated kind of, way but it can also be restricted by the government and that is exactly what happened in sudan there are there was even like a they call it the cyber jihad unit uh, which is from the government it was actually facilitated by hacking equipment by the u.s of all countries and these units would try to find posts of activists But also one of the tricky things was that they would make these fake protests. So people would come to a location and then, you know, the government, the police army is waiting uh, to get you arrested. And that's why live streams were so important. So people could know, you know, there are actually a lot of people already there. So it's safe for me to join instead of these fake events. It's crazy how our reality,
0: how people's reality is shaped by digital media and that it actually plays even such a big role in revolution. I think that really changes the perspective on revolutions. Um, You told us about the persistence of people in this last revolution. What do you think is the motivation for people in Sudan to want change so badly in their country?
2: The majority of the population in Sudan is youth, and they are actually well-educated people, but because of the economic and political situation in the country, they don't have a future. Like, people that have a PhD, architect, doctors, they cannot find a job. I mean, there are stories, I talk with people that are cleaning the university when they have a master's degree, you know, just to get some income. So what you would hear is that people say, you know, my future is already dead. If I don't do anything, I'm dead. If I protest, maybe something changes. Maybe it gets me killed. But one way or the other, I'm dead, kind of. So actually revolting and protesting and starting this revolution was the only way for the youth to go forward. Yeah, it was the only option for them, actually. Yeah, and it was also very interesting to see because when the revolution started, the government reacted with this big force, shooting, arresting, killing, like through the whole revolution, a lot of people died. But actually when the first march started and people got shot at in Khartoum, it actually... You know, you would think, okay, people would start and hide, but it actually went the opposite. So the next day, people would take their children, like whole families would go on the street. Because if you already for 30 years are living under oppressive regime, you're used to bullets flying around. Nothing would hurt them more than if they would stay quiet because it's the same
0: Going on in our place, and we still got Sudan revolution in our hands, and we still we still got our brother rights, our martyrs who die for our country. It sounds like kind of this explosion, the revolution that once someone decides, okay, this is enough, and there's like some energy. Uh, how do you say that? Yeah, you need like, you need Some a spark. energy erupting that, yeah, exactly, there's a spark and people are just so ready to, to start the movement.
2: Yeah. I mean, it was already underground happening. People for, like, years, I mean, they tried several times already to have a revolution in 2011, 12, 13. But, I mean, they learned from their mistakes straight. These revolts would be killed off by the government and this time they knew how to mobilise, they knew in which way to use social media in their adventures to actually circumvent the oppressive regime.
1: And uh, for future students who might go to Sudan to do research or to study there, what are your suggestions?
2: Um It's a great country to do research because people are super helpful. So don't worry about that. What really helped me was having your research, having it in a pitch form. So anywhere, any people you can meet, you can just quickly pitch your research. And then these people can say like, okay, I know this person or that person. And that's actually how it ended up with me. I got into places and made connections that I never thought uh, I would make.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's
0: very helpful. We almost arrived at the end of the episode and we have always one fun but really difficult question for our guests. What was your favorite moment in Sudan?
2: Yeah, that's indeed a difficult one. I don't know. I had so many great experiences and also so many different great moments where when I would be at a friend's house and drink with them, make traditional music. But also one of the highlights of my stay was attending a Sudanese wedding and, you know, getting really into the whole culture experience of that. How was that wedding? What do we expect from a S- Sudanese wedding? A lot of people, like the minimum for a wedding <laughs> is 500 people. So oh you have God. to imagine wow. like a big location with a lot of people, very colorful, glittery outfits, um, <laughs> loud music um, and a lot of food. Nice. Uh, Camila also
0: she went to an Indian wedding. Do you I recognize her? Uh, yeah <laughs> I went
1: to Camilla? this Indian wedding. It was not even a wedding, it was the party before the wedding, so and it was already huge. Like just like you said, a lot of colorful, glittery clothes, like hundreds of people. It was I think really similar.
2: <laughs> yeah, and also like the whole traditional aspect, because at the in the beginning you had this traditional musicians playing and then you know more dj came and at the end actually a woman came and she would do this very religious traditional kind of music and that would be the time that the bride and the groom would actually change their outfit in a more traditional outfit and the people would come to them to actually uh, congratulate them on their marriage such a nice way to
0: get to know a culture i think to go to a wedding that's the quickest way
1: to learn about the habits and the traditions, I think.
2: Yes, but like from a research perspective, like one of the my favorite moments was this very emotional interview with a, a woman that lost her husband uh, during the revolution. And, you know, you read about all these things and, you know, so many people died. Uh, but if you really talk to a person that, uh, you know, experienced it this first-handed and you get this information and you see the emotions the tears like it gives the it touches you in a different way and gives you um I don't know how to say it like uh yeah more human um
0: connection
2: yeah to to the subject you're studying you know your research you try to have a certain distance but with these kind of Interviews is also something uh, very beautiful. And, uh, yeah, I appreciate these moments that people would open up in this way uh, to a complete stranger.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. And what were the things that left the biggest impression of your general experience in Sudan?
2: The people by far. I mean... If you listen to their stories, they're like super smart, incredible, strong, fierce people, and they have inspired me. Their struggles and, and how they managed this positive attitude and this hope throughout 30 years of dictatorship. The majority of the youth I talked to, I mean, all of them actually, didn't know anything then living under a dictatorship. Their stories say, have touched my heart forever and uh, yeah i sincerely hope that you know as the dutch saying goes Drie scheepsrecht, like three times is right <laughs> i hope really hope sincerely hope that the third sudanese revolution uh, will be the change that the sudanese people are so desperately looking for
1: yeah let's hope so
0: thank you so much for sharing yeah, thank you, Mariah so much for sharing your insights on the Sudanese revolution. I thought it was really interesting and I think we both learned a lot today. For more information about Mariah's research experience in Sudan, visit our Instagram at IDS Goes Abroad. Thank you for listening.